Amen. Let's go ahead and pray before you're seated. We'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our service tonight. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for an opportunity to gather together to worship you, Father, to lift you up in praise. And thank you for being that lighthouse that leads us and guides us, Lord, that we can keep our eyes fixed on you. And Lord, you'll lead us through this life. And so I pray that we would, as we said this morning, we would desire to live this life for you and for your glory. And Lord, that in all things you would be honored and praised. And so we thank you for this gathering, that we can come together as the body of Christ to lift you up. Father, as we continue our series tonight talking about these different things, Lord, I pray you give us great wisdom and understanding, an understanding of your word and how we can apply these things to our lives, Lord. And we do pray for, uh, obviously, following the service tonight, Lord, the business meeting to come, and, and just a time to, uh, Lord, just to praise you for the last year, a time to lift you up in excitement and to talk about all the good things and all the amazing things that you're doing. Father, again, we thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This evening, uh, we are continuing our study, if you will, through the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And so, um, as these guys are being seated, I just want to remind you as well. Um, don't forget this morning, we talked about the uh, Abrams. If you remember, we are talking about the Abrams um, and just their ministry in Senegal, West Africa. And so, uh, I, I left this up front here. But I did want to just remind you guys about this. This is the New Testament uh, that they translated uh, into that language. And so if you're interested in that, curious, take a look at that. Uh, you can come on up and look at it. Um, you, obviously, you won't, you won't read it in the sense of understanding it. But uh, I, I find it amazing to see this. Um, they sent this to us actually a few years back. And it was at a service that they held, and we were able to show a video of the church just celebrating. Um, and it was such a cool thing. I'll have to see if I can find uh, that little DVD, if we can find it on file somewhere. But um, as, as far as I remember it, you see people coming in and uh, they have boxes of these Bibles and they're carrying them in, you know, kind of an African style on their heads. And the people are just shouting and singing and, and praising. And as they're handing them out, people are just in tears because they've been hearing this Bible preached and taught to them. And now they have their very own copy. And I remember when I saw that, I thought, man, what a blessing to see the excitement and the joy to receive the word of God. And I think about the church history and all the men and women that gave their lives so that we would have a copy of the Bible in our own language. And yet, if we're being honest, man, maybe at one time we used to react that way to God's word. But if we're not careful, we can slip out of that, right? We can slip into an apathy where God's word is just another book. Uh, but man, praise God for those little reminders to see people who aren't familiar with it, don't have it, don't have five or six copies. I have a shelf in my office literally filled with Bibles. Um, we're so blessed. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that, that we should feel bad about that. But in reality, we need to be thankful for that. And every time we open God's word, we can rejoice in his goodness. And so if you want to take a look at that, come take a look at it tonight uh, when we're all done here. It's just kind of cool to see that. Uh, also, a couple announcements I want to make sure you're aware of before we get into our uh, devotion this evening. Um, Forever Young is having their meeting on uh, February, or February 12th, which is next Sunday. Uh, we have uh, Fast Car coming up on the 18th. Uh, we have football Sunday, which is next Sunday as well. We're really excited about that. So wear your football gear and all that. You're like, I don't have any football gear. That's fine. We still want you to come. Um, also, don't forget, uh, we have baptism Sunday coming up on the 26th, being baptized as well. So pray up February 24th. Life Mark is the name of the movie. Um, the concessions for that movie night will go directly to the Lift Ministry. So come on out for that. Um, as far as the time goes, we're thinking about 6.30 or 7. We'll have a definitive time for you, obviously, next Sunday. Uh, Nerf Night is this coming Wednesday, so don't forget about that. I uh, want to let you know about the Hallelujah Quilters 
craft retreat that's coming up February 10th and 11th. So that's this coming Friday and Saturday. So please remember that. Um, and then also the student ministry has their snack night uh, on the 19th. Um, also with Fast Car, many of you know that um, our Word of Life missionary, uh, uh, Mike and Fran Van Bruggen, uh, they come and they put that on for us. And Mike usually does a devotion and all of that. Um, he's going to be staying over that Saturday and preaching for us in the morning service. And so I'm so excited to have Mike with us. And it's always good to have him come and share the word with us. And so I hope you're here for that. Uh, you don't want to miss out on that here in a couple of weeks. So uh, lots of things going on, lots of exciting stuff coming up. Also, don't forget about the food drive going on. So if you can, let's try to fill that table. I'd love it. If that table was filled, under the table was filled, like just getting some food uh, provided for those in need. And so again, non-perishable food items are accepted all month. All right. Well, unless there's any questions about any upcoming announcements, we'll go ahead and jump into our devotion. All right. So we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. Now, I know some of you maybe haven't been able to be with us in this series so far. So I just want to give a very, very quick overview. We've been talking about the fact that in Christianity today, in Christian circles, there are those that are teaching a different version of Christianity, which we're actually determining or coming out to find out not really Christianity at all at its core. And so uh, a book was given to me called The Ten Commandments of, Christian of Progressive Christianity. Uh, I read that over kind of Christmas break, if you will. And uh, Sandra's suggestion was, once we were talking more about that, um, maybe I should do a little study on that on Sunday nights. And so we kind of started doing that. This book that I was referencing is uh, by a gentleman by the name of Michael Kruger. And he was writing a critique of another person's work by the name of Philip Gully. And Philip Gully wrote a work that then was copied and kind of encouraged by Richard Rohr. So Philip Gully and Richard Rohr are two kind of progressive Christianity kind of gurus, teachers. They put out materials, those kind of things. And so what we're going to be doing is taking kind of the 10 statements of faith from that kind of writing that Gully and, and Rohr were a part of and talking about how those things are not in agreement with Scripture and how many of those things have what we call half-truth. There's a half-truth buried in there. There's a good point buried in there. But ultimately, we need to understand it's not a biblical truth. And so we've been doing that now for a couple of weeks. Uh, we are on number three, I believe three. Yep. Um, I think I have a little typo. I have a two next to my thing in the notes, but I believe, I believe this is the third one. So if this sounds really familiar from two weeks ago, just keep, just keep going with it. Okay. Just, yeah. Okay. Yep. Then it is the third commandment. I just didn't change it in my notes to number three. So we're good. Um, so real quick review, what would be another name? And we talked about this a little bit over the last couple weeks. What would be another name for progressive Christianity? We said it's also called this kind of Christianity, liberal Christianity. Now, when we say liberal Christianity, do not think political. Okay. Necessarily don't think politics, liberal and conservative politics. We're talking about liberal in the sense of self-determined. What we mean by liberal Christianity is I go to the Bible and I look at it through the lens of self, my understanding. I interpret scripture for what makes sense to me. It doesn't matter what others have said. doesn't matter what church history says. If it doesn't make sense to me or it doesn't fit, <clears throat> excuse me, the cultural narrative, right, of whatever culture you're in, by the way, then obviously we need to change scripture or the interpretation of scripture to what fits. And so we've been diving through that. I have to tell you as well, it's so amazing to me. And by the way, this is nothing new, right? We gave you a quote back here week one uh, of a gentleman that wrote a book 
basically critiquing liberal Christianity that was published in like 1923. So this is nothing new. By the way, it goes way beyond 1923, right? This goes all the way back to even in the early church. We see this type of teaching creeping in and those kind of things. We even said Jude. When you read the book of Jude, he critiques basically liberal Christianity. What was the reason that Jude wrote so vigorously against what was going on in the church? Because people in the church were teaching that grace is a license to sin. And he was kind of coming against that. What is that? That's basically a form of progressive or liberal Christianity. So this is nothing new. But when you think about this, it's amazing how when you start studying something, you start seeing it places. You ever have this happen? It's kind of like when you buy a car, you know, like you buy, like when we first bought our minivan, okay, which was a green Ford Windstar. I was so excited to buy a minivan. <sighs> so excited to buy a minivan. It was my dream car. That's, yay, a minivan. Um, we still own another minivan. I don't know how that happened. We got rid of one and bought another one. I don't know what's going on. But, um, but isn't, it, isn't it funny how when you buy a certain vehicle, all of a sudden driving down the road, what do you see everywhere? That vehicle. But if you would have looked like the week before, you never would have noticed those vehicles. So I think sometimes it can be like that when we're studying God's word in certain topics. All of a sudden, now we see these things in different places. And in the last couple of weeks, it's been amazing to me to, to hear little snippets of things, individuals in Christianity, some teachings that have gone on, some things that I've been hearing. And it's just amazing how this progressive liberal Christianity is not the fringe this is not the, you know, the crazy fringe outliers. There's so much of this in mainstream evangelical denominations. This is happening in so many places. It's called different things. It looks a little different, but it's basically the same teaching. And I normally don't name names of people. I don't like to do that because then what ends up happening is people fixate on one person and they forget the general principle and they've stopped looking at a principle and they look at a person. But I'll give you an example some of you know Andy Stanley. You've heard Andy Stanley. You know his father. Obviously, very famous, known preacher. Great man of God. But Andy Stanley started a church in Atlanta that now is considered a mega church. It's huge. Multiple campuses. He's been doing ministry for a long time. And Andy Stanley has always done ministry different than his father, which is fine, right? There's no one way to do church. We're good with that. But in the last so many years, he has even more so stepped out in disregarding the authority of Scripture he was quoted as saying that we need to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. That we don't need the Old Testament as New Testament Christians. He's made statements like Christianity is not built upon some ancient texts, referring to the New Testament. He has come out and said that basically in the area of homosexuality, that there's no real problem there. He won't really address it. He actually gave a story of an individual that was caught up in an adulterous relationship that was also a homosexual relationship, he ignored the homosexuality and focused on the adultery. Wouldn't even acknowledge his sin. He was just actually, a video just went public where he was at a pastor's conference telling people that, I know what the Bible says about this or that. I know what Romans 1 says. I know what Leviticus says. I know 1 Corinthians 6. His words, I know the clobber passages. But we need to grow and understand what it means to be accepting of that lifestyle. This is a well-known, evangelical, mega-church pastor who basically said he's felt this way for a long time. He's just slowly been discipling people to think this way. Now, does that mean that I hate Andy Stanley? And I, No, no, no. This is not an attack on Andy Stanley. We've said this all along. You can critique the teaching of someone without going after the person. 
I'm not going after the person, Andy Stanley, but I will critique the teaching of Andy Stanley. That's just one example. I was telling Sandra, I was listening to a video because I was waiting for, I think it was Anthony to come out of a, a pep band thing. I was in the parking lot for a little while and I was watching these different videos, you know how it is, and I heard this guy basically talk about his moving away from mainline views of certain areas. And it got me looking at this church and I found this church's website. It was a mega church. They literally shut down for COVID, which, hey, a lot of people did that. They just recently, in the last, like, six months, opened back up. And they were talking about moving forward and what the church was going to look like. And I'm like, this is interesting, I wonder. Because I knew where the pastor that had since resigned because he left the faith, supposedly, and now is an atheist, right, and all this stuff. So I'm listening to this church talk about that. They said, you know, we started talking to our people and talking about what the future looks like as we continue to transition and evolve. And whenever a church talks about evolving, my ears always kind of perk up just a little bit. And they said, you know, we found a lot of people don't really want to come to church on the weekend. They don't want to come to an event, like one event on a Sunday. Because, hey, who wants to give up their weekend? And they said, so we decided we're not going to actually ask people to come to a place of worship for an event on a Sunday. We're going to keep doing great content. We're going to put content out. But you know what? We decided that to bring people here, I mean, hey, who wants to give up their weekend to come to an event? And then the one person said, and it takes a lot of money. I know, amen, Lynn, me too. The one person says, and it takes a lot of money to do that. And who really wants to ask people for money? And no one really wants to give their money to something like that. This is progressive Christianity. This is liberal Christianity. Forget what the Bible says about not forsaking. Forget gathering together in the name of Christ. What What do you want? Like, what do you think is best? Let's do that. So let's unpack this this evening as we continue through this idea here. Because again, this is not fringe. This is happening all over the place. So the third commandment, the third commandment. So again, this is the progressive commandment. This is what they would say. And then we're going to unpack what that really is saying and what the Bible says about that. And I'm going to try to end a little early. So let's, let's pray that happens. Okay because I'm already behind on where I want to be. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So this is the third commandment. The work of reconciliation, and I'm going to read it through a few times, so I know some of you guys are taking notes and whatnot. The work of reconciliation should be valued, the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. The work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. The work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. So, what is this commandment really saying? One of the key hallmarks of progressive Christianity is that it emphasizes more on how humans interact with humans than how humans interact with God. And you probably caught that the last couple of weeks. That progressive Christianity is going to emphasize more about human-to-human relationship and interacting with each other, then it will how we interact with God. This is why a lot of progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity, will emphasize what we call felt needs over theology. And I just heard, again, another, I, I don't really mean to pick on him, but I just listened to this the other day, so it's kind of fresh on my mind. Andy Stanley, and this is not an exaggeration, these are his words. Jesus did not start with theology. He started with the people in front of him. How is that even possible to read scripture and believe that? Now, did Jesus care for the people in front of him? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
But what did they call Jesus when he first started his ministry? Teacher. Rabbi. No one's taught like you've taught. No one's spoken like you've spoken. One of the first things Jesus does in his ministry early on is preach something called the Sermon on the Mount. You want to talk about theology. This thing is loaded with theology. By the way, what does theology mean? What does the word theology mean? Study of God. Pretty simple. So anyone who's teaching me about God is teaching me what? The study of God. But do you see how it's all about felt needs? Jesus didn't start with theology. He started with the people in front of him. So what am I supposed to conclude from that? Theology, bad. Showing people love, grace, and forgiveness, good. Should we show people love, grace, forgiveness, and respect people as created beings of God? Of course. How do I know that, though? Because theology tells me, in Genesis, that we're all created in the image of God. That's studying the word of God. That's bibliology. That's a form of theology. Without that, I don't know that I'm supposed to respect you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where do we get that from? Theology. Studying the word of God. So again, progressive Christianity will always emphasize felt needs, human-to-human interaction, way more than our connection or our relationship with God. Gully, that individual I referred to before, is concerned here with estranged or broken relationships, which I will add are all around us and not at all how it's supposed to be, but a clear result of sin. So this is where we have to stop and go, okay, what's the the half truth or the, the partial truth here? We should, as followers of Christ, be concerned with broken and hurting people. Amen? We're surrounded by them. You work with them. You go to school with them. If you're here and you're a student, you see it everywhere. People are broken. People are hurting. They're in broken relationships. They've made decisions that have led to consequences that cause brokenness. And we need to be aware of that. We should be concerned with them. And again, it's okay to acknowledge that. And I did hear somebody say in regards to this idea of theology versus felt needs, and Stanley kind of says this, which I partially agree with. If your theology teaches you to ignore people's pain and not to evangelize and not to speak truth and not to show them the love of Christ, then you do have a problem in your theology. But we don't ignore the study of God because that's stuffy and old and and causes legalism. Again, you don't throw it out just because others have misused it. And so here again, Gully believes the church should do more to repair and restore these relationships, but in his mind is too busy condemning people's behavior. His words, Christians need to stop judging and start helping. Now, do you, I mean, do you hear the sprinkling of truth in there? I agree with a lot of what he just said. Are there churches that people feel condemned and judged and criticized and put down? Yeah. Is that wrong? Yeah. But that's not the Bible's problem. That's not God's problem. That church needs to get redirected to God's word. Those individual believers need to get back to what God's word says. But notice how he lumps this all together. Helping people, helping the broken means we don't judge them and we don't condemn their behavior. Because judging them is bad. Condemning behavior is bad. We just should help the person. Again, with all these points, we must acknowledge the half-truth in the statement. Reconciliation is a fundamentally biblical value and principle. 
Restoration of human-to-human relationships, by the way, restoration between us and God, is a strongly biblical principle and value. Cover to cover. You read story after story about people that are encouraged to be reconciled. Principles are given to help us be restored. We see all through scripture that we are to forgive one another. Luke 17, 4. We are to be reconciled to one another. Matthew 5, 24. Husbands and wives are supposed to be reconciling continually. We now know that every husband and wife needs to be reconciled continually. First uh, Corinthians seven eleven, And the removal of hostility between groups, Ephesians 2, 16. Racism, prejudice has no place. But see, what our culture has done is they've removed the ability to say, I disagree with you, but still respect you. We've removed that in our culture. If you say, I don't accept fully what you do and what you say and so on and so forth, then I somehow hate you. That's immature. That's, that's silly. Someone can tell me, well, I disagree with your beliefs as a follower of Christ. And I can look him right in the face and say, that's fine. Because I can still love you as my neighbor. I can still serve you. I don't have to agree with everything you say and do to then show you respect. I don't understand why we've lost that in our culture. So, what's the issue We all want reconciliation and restoration between broken relationships. We all want that. We all strive for that. The question arises as to what liberal and progressive Christianity means when they say the church needs to be less concerned with making judgments and surrender its fondness of either or thinking. What is either or thinking? It's either this or it's that. If you judge and condemn behavior, you aren't helping to restore broken relationships. And if you're working to restore broken relationships, you can't condemn behavior. That's the way the thinking goes. If the point is that churches need to guard against an ungracious attitude when dealing with a sin issue, making sure we are patient, kind, gracious, and loving to the individual, then we would agree. If that was their point, if their point was simply churches need to guard against an ungracious attitude when dealing with a sin issue, making sure we are patient, kind, gracious, and loving to the individual, then we would all agree with that. We should interact with each other in regards to sin that way. However, if the point is more likely the case that churches need to stop calling out sinful behavior and just let people be, then that is taking a biblical principle and misapplying it. This takes us back to the study we did on Matthew chapter 7 and Jesus' warning to judge not. So we did that a few Sunday nights ago. We're not going to turn there to start with. We're going to go to Galatians in just a minute. But I want to ask that question. So when Jesus said judge not in Matthew 7, 1, what did we say was the type of judgments that Jesus was saying not to practice? What are, what are some wrong ways to make judgments when dealing with a brother or a sister who has fallen into sin? Okay, the plank in the eye. So what does it mean when it says remove the beam in your eye so you can help with the toothpick in your brother or sister's eye? Okay. Right. With love, the right heart. Yep, concern. What is it called if I have an unconfessed sin in my life, an unrepentant sin in my life, and I go to you and I try to call your sin out? What kind of judgment would that be considered? Hypocritical. 
So hypocritical judgments not encouraged by Christ. Okay? Another type of judgment that Christ would say in Matthew 7 is not encouraged would be what we call superficial judgment. So what would be an example of superficial judgment? What do you think? What's an example of, I mean, I don't need like a practical example, but I mean, what would be, what would that look like to, to cast superficial judgment on someone? Oh, it could be. It could be a, non, a non-issue, but we're making an issue out of it. Okay, Renee? That would, yeah, that would, that would be part of that kind of also under hypocritical, I would think as well. Superficial judgment. Oh, okay. Okay. So basically, it, I'm trying to come across as being gracious and kind, but I really want, I want notoriety. I want position. I want control. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's kind of where my mind goes is, is I don't, and not even with just sin, I don't know the person. I don't have a relationship with the person. I don't know what they're really going through, but I see some things from over here and I go, you know what? I bet they're struggling with this, this, and this. So I need to go talk to them about that. And you go confront the person and the person's looking at you like a deer in the headlights. Like, who are you? Why are you all up in my business? Why do you care? By the way, you could be right. That really could be a sin issue going on. But do you think it's going to be received well? But rather, wouldn't it be more biblical to build a relationship with the person? Get to know the person? Remember, the body of Christ is supposed to be a family. So we come together. We get to know each other. We're praying for each other. We're growing in relationships. So that when somebody stumbles into a sin issue, we can go to them and we actually know them. We have a relationship with them. They have, we have a trust with them that they know we love them. We don't just love when they fall in line and do what we want them to do. And so to me, when Jesus says, judge not, he was not saying, do not discern, do not make judgments. The Bible's filled with principles of making wise judgments and wise discernments. What he is saying is don't judge hypocritically. Make sure your own heart's right. Well, then they'll tell you, well, I'm not sinless. We'll get to that in a minute. But he would also say, don't judge superficially. And so, but again, progressive Christians would go to that and go, Jesus said, don't judge. <laughs> it's in the Bible. And they'll quote you Matthew 7, 1. That's great. But this is the difference between biblical Christianity and progressive Christianity. We do not take a verse, pluck it out of the text, and apply it or misapply it without taking the entire context. What does the Bible actually say? Not what do I feel? What does my culture say? Not just what the the community of faith I'm in says. Because some people say, well, yeah, but a whole church might agree. But if a whole church agrees that it's, it's this and it's really that then it's up to the pastor and the leadership to say, no, 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 church, this is what we need to do. This is what the Bible actually says. And a lot of places, what people are doing is just falling in line. So as followers of Christ, we graciously walk with others and desire that if they are struggling in a sin issue, we pray for, encourage, and point to Scripture for what purpose? That they might repent and be restored. Go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. There's just, in my mind, a great biblical principle that we can see here. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. 
We've got a page and a half. I think we're all right. I think we're going to be good. All right, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, brethren, so who's he speaking to? The church, believers. Yep, other Christians. If a man or woman be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For a man, if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So what does it mean to bear one another's burdens? That means that we walk with each other. And if somebody's going through a sin issue, we don't cast them away. We walk with them. We spend time with them. We pray with them. We encourage them with scripture so that they might be drawn to repentance and restoration. Now it says there in verse one, ye which are spiritual. All that means is you're a follower of Christ and you've applied that Matthew seven thinking. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you got it all figured out. It just means you're spiritual, you're aware, you're saved, you're walking in the spirit, and God gives you the ability and understanding to see this sin in this person's life, and now you can go and love and encourage them. I love that it says a spirit of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's not cowardice. It's not kind of cowering behind and saying, if you feel like you maybe should deal with this. No, it's going in strength, but a controlled strength. The best way to say meekness is a restrained strength, a restrained power. It's kind of like uh, the bit you put in a horse's mouth. That horse is powerful, but it's under restraint. It's under control. And so here we see Paul's encouraging the church in their day-to-day relationships. Understand this. Also notice that it follows the whole section on liberty. Because again, some of the Christians in the early church were confusing liberty and sin issues. Well, it's a sin for you to do this. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not a sin. That's just a Christian liberty. It's okay. But if you make it an issue, now you're in sin. And so notice he was trying to help them to grow in this and understand this. So again, biblically, we are called, we are commanded to go to one another and help one another, not to judge in a condemning way. But if we do nothing, that's not loving. If we just let people continue in sin, because if we really believe the consequences of sin or what scripture says they are, then we need to take this seriously. So a few issues with simply judging less to help people more. So a few issues with simply judging less to help people more. So again, the progressive view is don't judge, don't, don't condemn any behavior. It's all fine. Which again, I would argue that's not really their own view. They just haven't been confronted on the right issue yet but give them a certain issue and they will condemn that behavior. So to say that we can never uh, declare a behavior to be wrong, if this is the progressive view. So what would be a problem with that? Well, number one, it is profoundly unbiblical. To say that you can never declare a behavior to be wrong is profoundly unbiblical. God calls out sinful behavior in the Old Testament. Jesus addresses it in the New Testament. The apostles do so and encourage the church to confront sin. And we see this in Matthew 18, verse 15. One of the first things that Jesus spoke about when he talked about the church, one of the first times he said the word the church was referring to what we call church discipline. Coming to one another, encouraging one another, strengthening and walking with one another for the purpose of repentance and restoration. So how can this be when we are all sinners? Some will say that they have no right to call out sin when they themselves are not perfect. 
How can I possibly confront you on a sin when, yes, technically I'm not living in a sin, I've repented of my sin, but I've been a sinner, right? Up to this point, I've made sinful decisions. Right now my heart is right, but man, two weeks ago, a month ago, 10 years ago, I committed a sin. So if I'm not perfect, how can I possibly go to someone else? Well, keeping the knowledge of our own sin and need of grace in mind is key to exercising appropriate judgments. It's actually a blessing that we know our past sins and that we know we needed grace and forgiveness because it helps us to go to others in the right way. According to scripture, personal perfection is not a prerequisite. Otherwise, no one could condemn sin, including those that condemn those that judge. Let me read that again. Because remember, Progressive Christians are condemning Christians who pass judgments for making judgments and condemning behavior. But progressive Christians condemn Christians who make judgments on behavior, even though they're judging and condemning our behavior. But we're wrong. Again, personal perfection is not a prerequisite. Otherwise, no one could condemn sin, including those that condemn those that judge. We address the sin issue if God's word calls it sin. The standard is not in us. I don't look to me and say, do I think that's a sin? Again, we're confusing sometimes liberty and biblical sin and offense. We need to go to God's word. So ultimately, to say a behavior is never wrong is profoundly unbiblical. Number two, quickly. To say a behavior is never wrong is ultimately self-defeating. It's ultimately self-defeating. As I just alluded to, the irony of this mindset is obvious. Those that say don't judge are, in fact, judging. The difference is what is their standard for judging? Personal feelings, cultural acceptance. We strive to make judgments based on the unchanging word of God, as well as offer grace to any who would repent. This irony is, again, blatantly obvious in our culture, a culture that says don't judge, but is the most angry and judgmental generations ever. We live in a culture that is always angry about something. And honestly, almost about everything. We live in a judgmental generation where everything, if it doesn't agree with me, is wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. We live in the most intolerant, tolerant society. It's amazing. People preach tolerance until it means that they have to show tolerance to something they don't believe in and agree with. So again, it's ultimately self-defeating. It's, it's just, it's, the irony of this is overwhelming. Tell me not to judge, but then you judge me for judging. But as I said, what is the standard? We don't judge based on self. We judge based on the word of God. Now, have people used the word of God and misapplied and made judgments? Absolutely. That's not the Bible's fault. That's our fault. We said it before. People have used verses from the Old Testament to try to validate or prove racism. But when you understand the context, that's not what the Bible was saying. But people took their personal preference, their personal cultural views, and forced it on Scripture. That's not God's problem. That's not the Bible's problem. That's our fault. People have done countless amounts of violence and hateful things in the name of God. That doesn't make it right. All we can do is go to scripture and say, this is what it says. And by the way, there's always been a remnant that has condemned those behaviors. There's always been believers that said, no, that's not right. This is where usually atheists will talk about the crusades. 
Well, yeah, but, you know, Christians went in and did all this. Okay, where did I ever say that was right? Humanity has done things that the Christians and the Crusades did, but we don't lump that in. Atheists do things that are hateful and violent, not under the guise of a religion, just under the guise of self and power and authority. So what does that tell us? There's a human problem here. It's a sin problem, and we need Christ. And so again, we need to understand it's self-defeating. Number three, quickly. It's inevitably selective. It's inevitably selective. Again, because the standard is changing based on emotion or culture, we are told not to judge others when it comes to sexual ethics or lifestyle. Yet, when it comes to racism, environmentalism, abuse, or similar issues, then judging is encouraged and demanded. See, it's pick and choose. Don't judge this person's sexual preference or ethic. But if somebody dares to cross this line over here with racism, then we need to judge them, condemn them, and you better be on board. Again, it's where we pick and choose. But what do we look to for our standard? It's God's word. Some of you remember Vody Bakken. We did a, a video through his expository apologetics. And he talked about this very thing. We should stand up for what is right according to God's word, which means speaking out against abuse, racism, hatred, and violence against anyone. However, I would say as followers of Christ, that position is the most consistent in our worldview because we apply that to everyone, not just to those that agree with our views. So it's inevitably selective. And number four, it undercuts the process of reconciliation. It undercuts the process of reconciliation. If we are to see real and lasting reconciliation, we must acknowledge a wrong was really a wrong. Not just to this or that person, but based on something beyond self. So what's the way we have reconciliation? Real, lasting restoration between two people, two human beings. You have to acknowledge something was actually wrong. You have to acknowledge that something actually happened. So that then you can deal with that situation and move forward. Now, let me just be kind of practical for a second here. Some of you have been in a situation where you've had to deal with a sin issue. You've had to approach someone on a sin issue. When that person and you had that conversation, maybe you had it where you said this was wrong. This was a sin. This hurt. This is whatever. And they looked at you and said, I don't really care. Did that help? reconciliation or did that take away from reconciliation? Did that continue the process of healing or did it stop and actually cause more hurt? See, because the person didn't want to acknowledge this is actually a wrong. This is a sin. But when we acknowledge the sin, we acknowledge the wrong and we admit this was wrong. Now we can actually begin to move forward. So the idea that you can't condemn any behavior as wrong actually undercuts the process of reconciliation. It's not helping more by judging less. It's right judgments, right discernment will help heal and bring reconciliation. We can't just ignore a sin. We can't just overlook things. Once a wrong or a sin is acknowledged, owned, and repented of, we can have forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation. And this is so obvious. And again, it's not that this group of progressive Christians don't want to acknowledge that anything is wrong. 
They only want us to acknowledge that there's certain things in our culture that you can't say are wrong. And again, if they tell you, no, I don't judge anyone for anything, that's not true. They just haven't been forced to have that conversation about something that happened to a loved one that they never thought would happen. And now they have to decide, is that right or is that wrong? We live in a culture where it says, no, 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 two people who love each other can get married. What's the big deal? But if you follow that logically out, you really do have a problem with, at a point, a standard. Two men, sure, that's fine in our culture. A 46-year-old man and a 12-year-old girl, mm, no, that can't happen. But if two people love each other, to see if the standard changes, now you can start justifying all kinds of things. And it's, again, it's not that all behavior is discouraged from being judged, only specific and selective behaviors. Because the standard isn't solid. It's not, it's not firm. It's moving. It's fluid. So, yes, churches must strive to avoid a judgmental tone and demonstrate humility, grace, and love to those struggling in sin. However, we cannot abandon the need to acknowledge sin. God declares something right. If God declares something right and others declare it wrong, then we go with what God says. And if God declares something wrong, as our standard, we would judge ourselves first, then be able to, for somebody who's not a Christian, but struggling in a sin issue, I would not deal with that sin issue. You have a coworker that doesn't know Christ, but they're struggling in a sin issue. Don't start with that sin issue. Start with the need for the gospel. Lead them to Christ so that the Holy Spirit will begin to do a work in them and they will acknowledge that is wrong and I need to repent of that and move on from that. But as believers, I mean, we're called and encouraged to walk with each other. Isaiah says it best, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5 and verse 20. So again, in the realm of progressive Christianity, the mindset is judge less, help more people. Biblically, we judge rightly. We judge with humility and grace. But the Bible says it's not loving to ignore sin. Now, again, how we do that? Relationship. We get to know people. We encourage them. We ask questions. We're vulnerable about our own sin issues, our own weaknesses, so that we might be able to walk with each other. Why? So that we might enjoy what Jesus calls the abundant life. And if we're trapped in a sin issue and we're not repentant of it, we're not enjoying the abundant life. We're dealing with that and we're over and over again. We're beating ourselves up. And man, what, the encourage, what about encouragement when somebody comes to us and says, I'm praying for you. How can I help you with that? Hey, listen, I've been there. God can get you through it. So again, just an encouragement. Yes, I understand where they're coming from, but we can't ignore the word of God because the culture says this or that behavior is okay. We need to call sin, sin. And do it in a way that honors Christ and leads people to repentance. All right. Uh, it's 6.50, so I am going to go ahead and take just a couple minutes. If anyone has a question or comment they want to share, then we'll pray. Let you guys stretch your legs for a second, and then we'll move into the business meeting. So does anyone have a, a comment or a question about what we've talked about tonight? I know, again, kind of some heavy stuff. Um, yes and no. I think there's hints of it in both, but I think progressive Christianity is trying to appease the culture where that term would probably be more of the general acceptance in the world's eyes. So progressive Christianity is trying to match the Bible with those things. That would be more of a cultural view that would disregard the Bible. There's no concern for that. So I'd say there's some overlap, but I wouldn't say it's the same thing necessarily.
Anyone else? Questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So there's a couple ways. I think through conversation, I think through encouraging that person to actually study church history and to read and actually understand what the Bible really is and how it was really comprised. Um, there's a lot of people on YouTube that have no idea what they're talking about. Um, it's like when somebody on YouTube says the Bible's full of error and then you ask them, show me an error and they can't because they've never actually read it, but they've just heard that talking point. Um, what that is referring to primarily is dealing with because there were books of the Bible that were not considered scripture. So they were not canonized or put in scripture in the early church. But if they say that to you, all you have to do is come back with some kind of a statement that the old Testament is, is secure. That's not a problem. It's the new Testament and the books in between our new Testament the 27 books we have in our New Testament are the exact same 27 books as early as about 150 AD. So that's the first known collection of letters and scriptures in the early church. Those 27 books have never changed. What they will do is they'll refer to something called the Council of Nicaea, which I think was around 325. My date might be off there, my year. But something like that. And that's, they'll say that's when the church put all the books together that they liked and got rid of the books they didn't like because it didn't affirm their views. The problem is the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with Scripture. The canon was already secure by that point. All the books were already collected, assembled. That wasn't the conversation. Council of Nicaea was dealing with the divinity of Christ. Was he really 100% God or 100% man? Or was he all one or all the other? So it was actually attacking a heresy against Christ and teaching against Christ. And they were trying to say definitively as a church, no, he's 100% God, 100% man. But again, if they don't understand church history— and they've just heard these talking points from some atheist on YouTube, then they're just going to follow in line and kind of repeat those same, same statements. So I would encourage someone that you know to, to maybe direct them to individuals who know and study church history believers and let that kind of, that be one way of teaching. And if they want to listen to other people, that's fine. Um, it's kind of like creation versus evolution. Like, you can listen to people who believe evolution so you know what that side is, and then listen to those that have creation views, and then let that person lay it before them and go, now you make your decision what you think makes sense and logical according to God's word and what we see. So, so I encourage people to try to do their own homework, not just take what a five-minute video on YouTube said. Um, there's a guy on Facebook. I've been sharing his stuff recently. Um, his page is called Red Pen Logic. His name is Mr. B. I forget his last name, but he goes by Mr. B. Um, he's kind of a modern-day Christian apologetic person, uh, does apologists or defends the faith. He does tons of videos in response to people on TikTok or whatever that have different questions. So if you go on his Facebook page, it's Red Pen Logic. Um, he does a lot of counter videos and teachings against some of those common questions that people want to kind of bring up against the Word of God or, you know, why does God allow this and this? And he kind of speaks a defense against those things. So he's, he's a good place to start um, and a good place to kind of begin there. But yeah, for sure, that's where I would go. So yeah. Or tell him just to call Pastor Greg. He can, he can set him straight. So he's like, yeah, I got, I got it. I got it. All right. Any other comments or questions before we pray? All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll let you guys stretch your legs for a few minutes here. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. And Lord, I know that this topic can be heavy. 
I know it's something that we see in here in our culture, not just in the world, but even in the church. There are those, Lord, that in an attempt to appear loving or appear accepting, Lord, they're, they're afraid to speak truth. They want to change your word or, or make it say something it doesn't. And again, Lord, I understand the desire to try to show love and to be accepting and, and want people to know they're loved by God and, and all of that. Lord, I get the heart of it. I get the, the intention behind it. But Lord, I pray that we would know that we have no right to change your word. Lord, we have no right to change what it means, how it's to be applied. Lord, your word is your word. It is set before us. And so I pray that we would be students of the word, desiring to see you use that in our lives to encourage others. And Father, we do pray for just this week ahead, as all of us are going to be in conversations and just different situations, I pray that we would see those opportunities and use them for your glory. And Father, if there's anyone here right now that is struggling in this area, Lord, I pray you'd give them your wisdom. I pray you'd draw them to your word. Lord, if there's somebody here that's struggling in a sin situation, Lord, a sin issue. Father, we all have temptations. We all battle sin. But I pray that we would know as followers of Christ, we don't battle it alone. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. And you've given us the ability to endure or to bear through these temptations. Lord, someone in this room right now is struggling with a sin issue that someone sitting right next to them would never understand. And that's okay. But the same God is able to give us the strength to endure those temptations that we might come out the other side glorifying you. Father, help us to be gracious and understand that we all need grace. There's no one perfect. But I pray, Lord, that as we have these conversations that we would both be honest and truthful, gracious, but Lord, also show that love, that opportunity for forgiveness. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for tonight. Father, go with us into this next part of our service as we'll be spending some time talking about the business of the church, Lord. And I pray that our mindset would be solely driven to you. And we'd be so thankful for all that you allow us to be a part of. This church was planted for your glory. And we thank you for that. Use this time as we talk through these things, Lord, that you again would be glorified. Give us wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.